Hello, it's time again for the Casual Tuesdays Book Club. This week I'm talking about Jules Verne's short story in the year 2889. Actually, although it publishes Jules' story, uh, it's believed to be mostly, if not entirely, written by his son, Michael. I won't get into the question of authorship on the podcast, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Anyway, you can find the story under Jules Verne on AmericanLiterature.com or on Project Gutenberg, which is hosted at Project Gutenberg. Project, uh, that shit, is hosted at gutenberg.org. That was way too hard. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. Let's get started. The first thing I wanted to talk about today was the narrative voice. Once again, we've got a story that could almost be narrated by Sir David Attenborough. The documentary feel is both in the content and the structure of the narration. In terms of content, it's largely just descriptions of action without editorial statements or presumptions. It's funny because it's really the stuff that's missing, basically anything that can't be reported as a fact, that gives it this feel. Yeah, it's just facts about what the person has done. And almost the only interruption to the direct plot of Mr. Smith's Day is these historical facts that the narrator intersperses just to give these incredible inventions context. And even then, those are still just facts. Also, the structure of the narrative follows the same principle of objectivity, which is, again, the underlying driver to this documentary kind of style. And just an introduction, and then a single day in the life delivered blow by blow, just like a Planet Earth episode. And then at the same time, there's just this cadence and pacing that feels a lot like a documentary. Okay, this documentary vibe comes from objectivity, or I guess a better way of saying it would be it comes from the absence of subjectivity. But anyway, this voice usually motivates me to look for two things. The first... When a calm, objective voice narrates a kind of fantastical technological scene like this one, there's a sense of incongruity. I believe this is intentional, and the lack of passion from the narrator is supposed to elicit an even stronger response from the reader to kind of compensate. So this really dry voice makes you pay attention to the peculiarities of this world, Vern. Uh, See how I ducked the authorship thing there and just call him Vern. Um, (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) the voice makes you pay attention to the peculiarities of the world, more closely, and so they stand out. This can make analysis a little bit tricky, though, on the other hand, because you have to parse out what statements are meant by the author, which is different from the narrator, but what statements are meant by the author to be read as genuine and what are meant to be read with a degree of irony. The second thing I look for is subjectivity. So, you know, because it's rare, so when it pops up, you have to pay pay close attention to it. Most of it comes at the beginning, when the narrator seems to kind of scold the population for not appreciating the marvels of their time, but there are little bits and pieces if you pay close attention throughout. Okay, one thing I always look for when I'm reading is repeated statements. Interestingly, one of the more editorial statements is also a repeated statement, Um, and in addition to that, it is the bookends for the narrative about Mr. Smith's day, and it's the ending point of the entire story. And all of those things are just meant to illustrate how important this statement is because they've been given these prime positions so they it will stand out. Anyway, the statement in question is how every day is the same for Mr. Smith. And I want to talk about that for a little bit. I read this statement as the tragic flaw of all the wonders of the 2889 society. Now, normally I'd love a good philosophical tangent, but I think this one's pretty straightforward and I've got other stuff I want to get into. But anyway, here's my short and sweet version. If every day is the same... That's super boring. And the technology in this world has enabled that monotony. The reason I don't want to get, um, yeah, 
look, I don't want to project too much of my own boredom of living in the suburbs or my Luddite views onto the story, but that's kind of what I think the takeaway is. And given the way, the strength with which uh, Vern emphasizes it and the positions that he puts it in, I think he has issues with that as well. Um, and, you know, there's other stuff in there, but I've got other things to talk about. Anyway, interestingly, when he first introduces the theme, Vern says, and this is a quote, what day? That matters little. And I like it because this little rhetorical question is great because it breaks with the cadence of the story and it helps that idea stand out. Another thing I liked about this story as a whole is that Vern shows how days became the same in a very gradual kind of piecewise way with allusions to different things in addition to stating it outright. So let me explain with some examples. They redistribute all the heat so that there are no seasons, which is just kind of a random technological advancement that makes all days the same in terms of weather. Meanwhile, he subscribes, he, Mr. Smith, subscribes to a food system that delivers his meals. There's really no need to leave the house for shopping or cooking. He kind of just sits in his room and he waits for his food to come with him or come to him, thus more monotony. And uh, Smith is a businessman and managing his company requires a lot of time and it just requires him to be very regimented. So he has this natural and professional disposition for being monotonous. So all these things are coming from different angles and different sources to create a monotonous day that's not simply just imposed upon him by some impressive government like George Orwell does in 1984. So now I like this gradual piecewise progression because it makes it much more realistic and it's so gradual you can kind of, it lulls the reader, excuse me, it lulls the reader into almost, you know, missing it and I think that's why he restates it at the end is to just really highlight how important it is to make sure that, you know, the reader's got the thesis of the story. Similarly, I think one of the interesting things that Verne does is describe how things in this whole universe came to be, or this whole world. Um, I've been watching too much Marvel, so I say universe, things like that. Actually, not too much. Black Panther was a sick movie. I don't regret that at all. It was amazing. Anyway, okay, back to the story. Every time you read a story predicting the future, you try to figure out how correct the author was. You know, for the record, this story was written in 1889. So George Orwell writing 1984 in 1948 seems pretty weak now. Anyway, not relevant. I don't think it's good pos podcasting to just restate, or just good analysis for that matter, to restate, restate obvious plot points for the story. But Vern nevertheless did nail some things about the future, and I think they're pertinent to this day and age, so I want to go over them. The main one that stuck out for me was the prevalence and the political influence of the media, which is a pretty big issue these days. Um, also, he had a little line in there about how pe people could switch the reporter to find one they liked better, and that's true today, and given the partisan nature of some networks, and the way people see seek programs that will affirm their own beliefs, and how it kind of contributed to a polarization of politics, all that doesn't matter, but uh, he kind of, he alludes to that phenomenon as well. Um, he gets that people will live longer, but he's off by a huge margin. Um, he gets that some people will be hyper-rich, though uh, Mr. Smith has a paltry $10 billion, which is nothing next to Jeff Bezos's, I checked this morning, $125.4 billion. That's a lot. Uh, he got video chatting. That's pretty cool. Uh, Elon Musk is trying to build pneumatic tubes to travel in, so he's kind of on the right track with that, maybe. Uh, anyway, he gets a lot of stuff right. But the thing I want to draw attention to is how Verne sets up how these things came to be. And he uses those little historical notes that I uh, talked about before. Um, and then he has this lengthier introduction where he's talking about how there 
energy capture systems and their way to convert energy allowed them to build all these things. And the reason I wanted to call attention to this is because if you're writing about the future, it's nice to have this path to def that takes someone from present to future. And this way, the reader can engage with the story more easily and they can see how it affects them and they can just really tie into it. And also, in terms of writing like a dystopia, it's good to have it be plausible and people can see exactly where they're going to go and then they hit these intermediate steps and could, you know, write the ship, so to speak. So, and uh, on top of that, it's just a great sense of realism. And if you jump right into like laser beams and spaceships and shit, it's not going to work and you're, you're, I think you're losing your reader. So, well done, Mr. Vern, whichever Mr. Vern it was. All right, last for today, I want to talk about something very close to my heart, and that is respecting science fiction. People often relegate sci-fi writing as pulp, and they don't really give it the time of day. Kurt Vonnegut, a hero of mine, hated being called a sci-fi writer, specifically because he felt like people wouldn't take him seriously with that label. Anyway, here's my opinion on hashing out this whole whether sci-fi is legit or not debate. There is some science fiction writing that is truly masterful and ought to be given the same respect we show toward any other revered works in the literary canon. There's also a bunch of bullshit. So, what's the difference? Well, good sci-fis uses tropes and dressings of the genre to address lasting and thoughtful questions, while bad sci-fis just stories about lasers or robots for the sake of lasers and robots and maybe with some alien porn. For example, Blade Runner is a great movie and it uses futuristic robots and technology to force the audience to ask questions about humanity and consciousness that are really just best addressed through this technological prop. Whereas, Signs by M. Night Shyamalan is just about scary aliens fucking up a farm and, spoiler, being allergic to water. Which, by the way, is fucking everywhere. Somehow didn't slow them down. Huge plot hole. Whatever. Doesn't matter. I'm confident that good sci-fi writing will be saved by the merit, its own merit, and bad stuff will just be forgotten, just like M. Night Shyamalan. But the real question is, in the year, or that's not the real question, for this podcast, the question is, in the, is in the year 2889, good sci-fi or bad sci-fi? Personally, I'd say it's medium sci-fi. What do I like? I've already talked a little bit about this, but I'll just go over some stuff. I like how accurate some of the predictions are. That's great. I like how the plot doesn't rely on necessarily outlandish shit. It's a day like any other. The resurrection thing uh, fails, which is kind of an anti-climax that I think is really funny. But, um, and how <laughs> this whole guy's life work, he just killed himself. It's just dead and they move on. It's just a day like any other. Anyway. Uh, I like how Vern gives the reader those historical bridges to the future. I think that's a great technique. What don't I like? I don't like how at times it felt like just a list of every idea Vern had about the future. And it, that gets annoying, and it begins to feel like I'm reading about cool technology for the sake of cool technology. And that, I don't like that. Okay, but this story's lasted for a long time. Like I said before, it was published in 1889. So I think it's lasted long for a couple reasons. You can't just, it's not necessarily that it's great sci-fi, but it's lasted for a couple other reasons. First, the name of the author, which is maybe why if, if Michael wrote it, he published under his dad's name because, you know, it's a famous name, so his stuff's going to last. Second, I think it's lasted because of how well it's predicted some things 
And clearly, I already mentioned this earlier, it's relevant. Some of those things are relevant today. Um, the third thing is kind of a different one with about futuristic writing is that it hasn't hit its deadline yet. Let me explain that last one. So I guess, yeah, there's three things. I said two and there's three. Anyway, um, the last one. In 2015, people were referencing Back to the Future 2 to see if anything from that came true. And likewise, in 1984, the year 1984, people were talking about Orwell's book to see how much of that came true. Uh, for the record, 1984 is a brilliant book. Orwell's an incredible writer, and it's going to last, I hope, I think forever, because it's such a great, great book. Anyway, the idea for right now is that, I keep getting these standards, the idea for right now is that we, we haven't hit 2889 yet, and so if this story's still around, people will, you know, keep it around so that they can say, compare their lives to Vern's story and see how their society stacks up. So, you know, and you know what, even if it's, I'd say, I'd say it's medium sci-fi for me. I've read better stuff, um, but it's still entertaining. So that's, you know, that's always good. I still liked it. It was fun. All right. That's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in. Next week, I'll be looking at Louisa May Alcott's poem, Little Women. Yeah, that's right. It's a poem too. Anyway, it's on AmericanLiterature.com. Could be somewhere else I haven't checked yet. Um, but it's definitely there. Uh, the music this week was the Yeah, Yeah, Yeah song by The Flaming Lips, which posits a bunch of hypotheticals, including some that I'd say are futuristic, given the powerful extent of the scenarios, some allusions to technology, and just the fact that hypotheticals are almost inherently future-based. Um, anyway, also there's this upbeat, kind of silly tone to the music that is really ironic given the intense content and potential for genocide that's in the song so with that juxtaposition when it really you realize that when the message hits and it makes it a lot more powerful which is kind of like that uh you know difference of tone and content i was talking to or talking about earlier finally these hypotheticals are all tied to answering questions about human nature and that's one of the things i like about sci-fi so thanks again for tuning in and here is more from the flaming lips If you could make your money and then give it to everybody, would you do it? If you knew all the answers and then could give it to the masses, would you do it? No, 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 no. Are you crazy? It's a very dangerous thing to do exactly what you want because you cannot know Do, do, do.
quit. You, you, I didn't, I didn't make it all the way through that. 